0: namo tas bhagavato hara hato sambha sambhutasa namo tas bhagavato hara hato sambha sambhutasa namo tas bhagavato hara hato sambha sambhutasa Buddhang tamang sanghang namasami So we've had these days of practice together and quite intensive uh, very um, quite a a full uh day of many hours of sitting chanting pojas, walking meditation uh, and keeping the discipline of of noble silence and quite um Quite demanding. And uh, for some of you, you were used to it, and it was. I'm imagining a sense of, maybe even a sense of gladness at slipping back into the retreat routine. If you've found it pleasant in the past to uh, pick it up again for these days. And for other people, it may have been a bit. Daunting the uh, prospect of so many days without speaking, getting up early, no supper, these things. And uh, it's interesting just to contemplate how um, just being with with other people doing the same thing uh, enables us to go beyond. Um, our limitations. You might think oh I could never do that and then somehow or other during these days just the fact we've been all doing it together uh, that's a a tremendous support and encouragement and kind of sense of well if they can do it I can do it. So having uh, good companions is something that the Buddha really um, recommended um, for people who are sincerely interested in putting his teachings into practice, liberating the heart. And so when the you know, having come together for these days, having enjoyed the um <clears throat> company of um people engaged in a similar kind of practice. You know, even though there's been very little talking, just the quiet presence of each other and long hours of sitting and, and so on, um and then the anticipation of the time of, of separation and considering how our practice might continue, how we might find <coughs> the uh, support that um, is helpful to us, <coughs> and how we can uh, continue our practice. Because um, just because the retreat is finishing, it doesn't mean that we don't continue to practice. Uh, Our translator always used to say, at "The end of the winter retreat." While well, the, in fact, he he never really called it the end of the retreat. It was just like the practice continues. Um, in uh, different circumstances. You know, so many of you will be leaving the monastery tomorrow and <clears throat> returning to the situations where you live and obviously for each one it's it's different some of you, you know, maybe have families husband, wife, children um, others of you may live on your own or just with one other person or in the community or something um, but the one thing that's Obvious and certain is it'll be different from uh, the experience we've had over these days, and often, quite naturally, there's a concern about how how we'll manage, how we'll continue. Uh, I mean, for some people, there maybe the anticipation it might be a sort of huge relief. <laughs> Thank goodness I don't have to get up early and keep quiet and uh, do what I like. Um, which would be a kind of natural enough. Um, and yet having put you know, so much effort in uh, over these days to uh, create the conditions for the mind to, to settle, you know, having Perhaps experienced you know some measure of calm um, there can be a feeling of actually wanting to find some way for that to continue in in some form or other. Obviously, it's unrealistic to expect it to continue just the way it has been these days. Um, but to to consider the um aspects. Of what we've been doing that are applicable, suitable to bring into our our daily life, is a is a useful thing to consider because we could feel a bit discouraged and hopeless and think oh, I'll never be able to do it because you know the conditions aren't there, not at the monastery. Don't have people encouraging me. Don't have other people. Uh, not surrounded by people who understand uh, this practice. In fact, maybe there are people who live with, who are a little bit antagonistic, who are not so supportive or interested. So this is the time that we um, need to be particularly kind of um brave is one word that comes to mind and, and creative um you know, consider how we can um adapt our practice uh to the circumstances that we um that we're living that we live in to the uh, responsibilities that we have The people we live with, the people we associate with, work, and so on. And many of the teachings that I've been offering... um, are actually just as applicable um, off retreat as they are on retreat. The foundations of mindfulness, the Brahma Viharas, the um, contemplation of Anicca, Dukkha, Anatta, the Four Noble Truths, I mean they're all uh, teachings that we can apply um, wherever we are, whatever we're doing. obviously during this retreat we've had an opportunity to focus in a very direct way uh, to to hear the teachings and then to apply them um, without um, the usual kind of distractions Uh, keeping quiet and, and times just to really sit quietly for long periods of time to to the walking meditation, a very um special kind of opportunity. And obviously um when we're not on retreat there are many more distractions. And you've all had a, a chance to experiment with just talking, <laughs> which is something that you know, in daily life is a lot of a lot of talking. And uh, so you've had a chance to to see how that affects the quality of presence of mindfulness, and how easy it is to to slip into maybe not such skilful habits of speech. You know, maybe not not desperately unskilful, but just you know, things just to find oneself saying things that maybe aren't necessary, aren't helpful. Um, and just a, a sense of wanting to fill up the space, wanting to fill up the silence. Because silence is a bit of an acquired taste, I realise. I mean, for many people, they feel quite uncomfortable if there's not some kind of noise going on round about. And people have the radio on all the time, or TV on all the time. Uh, just quietly there in the background, company. (laughs) Uh, Or maybe they're actually listening to what's being said and filling up the mind, or allowing the mind to be filled up with these impressions. Uh, The the news, discussions about all kinds of things. Radio 4, discussions about... I don't know literature, poetry, theatre, and then all kinds of social issues, you know, which are you know, interesting to consider, and uh, just realizing that they they do take up space in the mind. You know, sometimes people, you know, can feel very, very busy, you know, just overwhelmed with all the things they have to do. And partly that's because they, there's just constant things filling up the mind. You know, so, the, so the mind feels busy, feels full of all kinds of concerns that maybe aren't particularly related to our own situation, but you know, have some kind of relevance to society or the world or something or other. Then the conversations we have with people which you know, also, you know, take up mind space. You know, we remember them afterwards, and maybe worry about them, or feel concerned in some way. So it requires a tremendous amount of discernment, you know, wise consideration of of how we can live skilfully with ourselves, firstly, and then with each other, you know, with our, our family, our friends, our um, associates, and then, you know, people in the shops or on the bus. just people that we inc- encounter in casual ways. because it's not that the practice is about never having any kind of relationship or interaction with people uh, and sometimes after being on retreat we might feel that we don't really ever want to speak to anybody ever again <laughs> <laughs> you know because we're concerned about disturbing our our samadhi um you know, wanting to continue the the pleasant feeling of quiet mind and not wanting to stir it up, to agitate it. Um, this kind of fearfulness, and uh, actually, it's a kind of selfishness, isn't it? It's kind of shutting ourselves off from people because we don't want to disturb our our peace of mind. and i said before how the um uh, how how it's interesting that the um the whole of the um like the sasana that the, the 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 vehicle for practice the buddhist vehicle for practice um is based on unselfishness generosity so for monks and nuns who have more opportunity in some ways to practice meditation, fewer distractions, fewer. you don't have to worry about paying any bills, and going to work, that kind of thing. Um, and, you know, there the can be the temptation to just want to shut oneself away, live in a cave somewhere and never have anything to do with anybody. But the Buddha. You know, the fact is that monks and nuns, we can't store food overnight, so every day uh, there has to be a a going for alms. In Amaravati it just means going into the sala. (laughs) 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 But, um, you know, there are monks and nuns living in other situations, like in Thailand, say, or Sri Lanka perhaps, where... um, you know, the, the way that they um, receive their alms food is just by going, walking uh, silently through the villages, into the town, and even the monasteries that are in you know, very well supported, like Wat Nana the monastery for Westerners, where every day lay people come to the monastery and prepare food. You know, still, um, you know, they still they consider it a duty. Uh, to go into the village each day, you know, they, they're not allowed to miss it as part of the training of the of the monks there. So Ajahn Shah, when the monks first came to live in London, and they kind of asked about continuing the arms round, and he was very clear that this was something that they should do. Even though there were very few Buddhists uh, in London, very few people who had any clue what they were doing, and uh, any interest in you know, offering alms food. And similarly at Chidhurst, you know, just every day they would go out with their bowls. And, uh you know, Tuncha sort of talked about, it, it's like flying the Buddhist flag, you know, just making, you know, being a presence in the society. Available to receive alms food, uh, so that those who wished to develop the practice of offering alms food could do so. So the uh, summoners, the monks and the nuns, their, their practice of generosity is making themselves available uh, to receive offerings. So this um quality of generosity is, is considered really important, and it's useful to consider this as we um return to our different situations you know how how does that apply in relation to our practice how do we um uh, support ourselves in our practice, and how, without being um, selfish um, about it, and it can be helpful just to consider, like say, if we if we do have families, just the fact of the generosity that they showed in in um, you know supporting us to come on the retreat, and managing without without us <laughs> to help with the washing up or whatever it is that we do at home. Without our company, it's, um, so you know, rather than going home and shutting ourselves away for many hours each day to develop our meta practice, <laughs> uh, just considering how um, we can relate to our friends, our families in a, a kind of normal way. not expecting to continue exactly the same kind of routine that we've had during these days. Uh, And yet, also making a point of setting aside some time each day for formal practice. I consider this to be very important, in fact. You know, not doesn't have to be hours and hours, but to really um, develop a habit, you know, wherever you are, of setting aside some, ti- aside some time um, according to what's convenient, maybe not totally convenient, maybe maybe a little bit inconvenient, but a a, a routine that's realistic in terms of the other things that you need to do in your life. So maybe it's just 10 or 15 minutes, either at the beginning of the day, or the end of the day, or both if you can, or maybe in the middle of the day. You know, so it just becomes part of what you do. No big deal. If we're too ambitious, if we set our goal, our aspiration too high, uh, then the chances are that we won't be able to keep it up. So it needs to be realistic. And I often tell the story of a friend who Uh, had a very clever way of doing it. She'd um, make herself a cup of tea in the morning and she'd set her kitchen timer for a certain amount of time and she'd go into her shrine room. She had a little shrine room, so she'd go and sit in her shrine room and drink her tea, enjoy her cup of tea and then just continue sitting until the Timer went off in the kitchen. So she'd sit it, you know, set it for the time it takes to drink a cup of tea plus you know, ten or fifteen minutes, twenty minutes, half an hour. I don't know how long it was that she she did it for, but it's you know finding ways to actually make it easy. You know, even if if it sort of feels a little bit like cheating, <laughs> um, I'm all for a bit of cheating if it helps us to. Um, Cultivate and maintain and and enjoy um, a routine of um, meditation each day. Formal sitting. I mean, another way of seriously cheating is actually not even calling it meditation. Maybe even sitting in an armchair at the end of the day. If you're really tired, just coming home, sitting in an armchair and just deciding... That for the next, I don't know, fifteen minutes, half an hour. Um, that you're not going to do anything else, other than attend to your mind and body. Just to listen to the, to the voices, of your mind. You're not, not, planning, not, sorting out any problems. Uh, but just sitting and attending to what's going on, you know present moment awareness is what I'd call it mindfulness, and if uh, uh, if you can and then, then focusing on the breath you know, being aware of using mindfulness of breathing to uh support that presence you know sometimes if we think i've got to meditate it can feel like you know too much so just deciding to sit quietly and not do anything else another story i tell very often is about um a couple i know and he's retired and she still goes to work and i said to him i said oh i said do you do you all you know do you, do you do the cooking and the shopping now that you don't have to go out and work. And he says, well, yes, and I I prepare supper. And he said, but the most important thing that I do is to um, just listen while she tells me what she's been doing during the day. (laughs) All the things that have happened, the concerns, the worries, the good things, the bad things, and in a way this is a little bit like what we can do for ourselves just just listen you know so often we have an idea of meditation you know and especially having spent this time together you know, that the mind you know unless the mind is completely quiet and we have a get into a sort of state of samadhi blissful samadhi um our meditation's no good you know, but if we have a very busy life, often meditation is just listening to the mind, going on about all the joys and sorrows of the day. And then, you know, perhaps it might settle down a little bit. Or, you know, for those of you who are skilled in, in samadhi, then maybe there is more more inner quiet on a daily basis. But, you know, for many people it's just more a matter of just listening Attending patiently, kindly to the voices of the mind. And not being discouraged by the uh, lack of inner quiet at those times. Maybe it's just a moment or two, maybe just a couple of breaths that we really uh, enjoy. Or maybe we start the period of time with... um, a few mindful breaths a breath for the buddha a breath for the dhamma a breath for the sangha we can we can do that as a as a strategy <clears throat> in fact we can do that <clears throat> during the day you know if we've got a <clears throat> a few moments when there's nothing else particular happening around us waiting for the bus waiting for someone to show up these wonderful wonderful waiting times you know, when somebody's late or the flight is delayed, or just really um, celebrating those times when there's absolutely nothing else we can be doing. You know, we can't set up our computer and start doing our emails, um, or get out our little, you know, we've got one of those little gadgets that you kind of switch on and start fiddling about with, <laughs> sending and receiving text messages. I mean, gosh. <laughs> Enjoy not having anything to do except to be aware of the breath, relax the body, make allow the face to be soft. Somebody's talking about soft face practice, which I think is a very nice way of uh, practicing just letting the face be soft, dropping the shoulders. so that our whole life is not filled with busyness. Sometimes people say to me, well, you know, I can see that you're very busy. And uh, I always think that if people see that I'm busy, or if I'm busy, that actually I've um, uh, let myself down. Because, um, you know, we can have, Plenty of things to do, but we don't have to be busy about them, do we? You know, busy is when we kind of carry all these things around in our mind, and there's a kind of as though we've got a whole lot of things queuing up, waiting for our, our attention, and that—that's what feels like being busy. You know, sort of carrying these lists around in our minds and uh, not really attending. To the present moment and doing one thing at a time, attending to each thing, not letting the whole list of things crowd in and agitate us, make us feel busy, burdened with duties, Uh, really contemplating the possibility of being unburdened with duties. Attending to each thing with a with a quiet mind, of course, when we um, are interacting with each other, talking with each other, engaging uh, when we're working together with other people, um, there are times when we get upset. Aren't there? <laughs> when when somebody says something mean, or when we um, make a mistake, you know, these things can can agitate us. Uh, and rather than being present, uh, what we can find is the mind is compulsively, obsessively drawn back. Uh, to that incident, to the thing that was said either by ourselves or by somebody else, and uh we can get into a reaction with this, kind of oh, shut up, <laughs> you know just feeling i shouldn't I shouldn't be thinking about this, I shouldn't be worried about this, I shouldn't be upset about this instead of just recognizing the feeling of being a little bit off-balance, disturbed, agitated. You know, as soon as we establish present moment awareness with this, it's it's like regaining our balance. And actually just bringing the awareness inwards, You remember the epithet of the Dhamma, leading inwards, noticing, how is it right now? It's like this. So that we don't allow these things to to build up during the day. I remember um, <clears throat> asking Ajahn Chah a question about about this, because at that time I had a I had a job, and uh, I would notice that you know over the weekend. You know, by that time, I was you know quite committed to practice, and so my weekends, you know, I um, would do medit- you know practice meditation, and I would you know have time for myself or go for walks and. The mind would would settle to some degree, and then I'd go into work and uh you know there would be this kind of sense of inner calm and well-being uh, which you know, which I enjoyed obviously, and you know I would see the other people around me who were maybe less calm and a um, you know, sense of you know being able to in some ways support. Um, an atmosphere of calm in in the office where i was working and uh, the first day that you know it would be like that the second day i would be sort of slightly less calm and <laughs> a little bit more affected by the people around me you know by their agitation and sort of less of a kind of able to kind of be a, a vehicle for calm and peacefulness more kind of getting disturbed by them. And then by the end of the week, I'd be just as frantic as everybody else. <laughs> and so, I, you know, it was a pattern I noticed every week. The same thing would happen, however hard I tried to maintain, you know, balance. And Aynar uh, and Charles response was really just, you know, patience, patient endurance. Um, because what happens when we get agitated is that we lose, we, we're not patient. There's a kind of struggle to try to um, make things all right, which just makes things worse, doesn't it? A kind of reaction. Whereas if we can be really patient with it, uh, then it has a chance to settle. You know, so if you have a, a chance during your working day or whatever you do, just to uh take time to be with nature. I'm always very uh appreciative, like if, when I do have to go into London, just the sort of number of trees there are there, parks and uh you know, so if you have a chance to just go somewhere where there's green and birds and flowers and things, just to, to contemplate those. Um because they're they're calming. one winter retreat Arjun Sumedho encourages us just to contemplate the trees uh the trees that don't have a, a sense of being important or being somebody having an a, an agenda a program you know they're just trees just being trees and uh they do it beautifully don't they So rather than tuning in or being affected by the franticness of the people around us, the environment, the sort of um, busy work situation that we're in, see if we can be affected by trees. Tune in to them. Probably not suitable to go around hugging trees in the middle of London, but uh you know if you have a if you're in a quiet place where you people won't think it's strange, i definitely recommend hugging trees <laughs> they're very very loving <laughs> at least that's the experience I have when I hug trees it's very it's like a sort of calming soothing um And the Buddha always said, you know, there are trees. There are these roots of trees. You know, go and go and sit at the root of a tree. Uh, The walking meditation. Walking down the street. Uh, remembering, as I said, how far away the feet are from the head. You know, thinking is happening up in the head. And if you attend you to your feet, rather than getting caught up in the thinking, and that can be really helpful. And sometimes, obviously, we need to think. Uh, need to plan things, arrange things. Uh, sometimes it's helpful to think about things that have happened in the past, you know, just reflecting, a you know, wise reflection, and carefully considering uh, things that have happened, you know, particularly where we seem to have made a mistake, hurt somebody, um, done something that we maybe feel not so good about. I'm um, just you know, considering the events that led up to that, you know, our own state of mind. And as I've said before, you know, if you feel a bit raw, a bit irritable, grumpy, then you know, to be particularly careful around the situations that you get into, conversations that you have people that you associate with and, you know, if there's any choice, then, you know, avoid people who make you feel disturbed and agitated. You know, because many of the people in this planet are incredibly disturbing and agitating. (laughs) 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 I remember years ago saying to Ajahn Samadhi, I mean, I was quite apologetic actually, You know, there was one person in community who I, you know, would get very disturbed and agitated by. And Ajahn Samedi was so helpful. He just said, yes, that person does have a very disturbing energy. And I thought, ah, I don't have to feel guilty about being disturbed and agitated by being around that person. You know, particularly when people aren't practicing meditation aren't aren't mindful because you know, most people well actually now actually there are more people who are you know, practicing mindfulness because it's become such a kind of fashion you know, everybody's into mindfulness um, but the ones who aren't <laughs> uh, and there are many who who are not into mindfulness you know, and, and are often into uh, quite remarkable heedlessness and uh, all kinds of get into all kinds of unskillful um, activities that do not support wakefulness do not support presence um, and so around those people it's 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 good to you know to bring awareness to how it affects you And again, patience and kindness, because we can feel quite reactive um different ways. I mean, we can feel, you know, why do they have to be like that? Or we can feel a bit superior. Well, I'm not like that. <laughs> uh, you know, how coarse they are, how heedless. Uh, you can even be a bit, you know, a bit repelled by, by the way that uh, some people behave. And this is not um kind, so how do we deal with those situations? You know when people are you know maybe using very coarse, vulgar language or um, not polite or respectful, you know, don't stand aside for us in mean, that kind of that is a retreat you know people open the door for us and stand aside for us a very very you know beautiful behavior you know, when you come to the monastery people behave in a very good way very careful and mindful considerate but not everybody's like this you know walking around london i remember one time oxford street i mean it was it was really unbearable you know <laughs> You know, the way that that people were were walking, you know they were just completely locked into their own worlds, barging past, and um, you know there wasn't that kind of consideration that um, we experience when we're on retreat, not sensitive, not kind, not patient not harmless, there's a sense of wanting to be harmless or any of the precepts. <laughs> so how do we respond to that? Well patience, of course. Um kindness, compassion. You know, when when we're heedless, when we're selfish, this is usually coming from a place of um it's it's not coming from a place of well being, a place of presence um, a place of you know um blessing a sense of blessing you know often there's a sense of um, uh spiritual deprivation in some way and uh so And just consider the possibility of um, a kind of um, understanding. You're not a condescending understanding. Oh, you poor thing, I'm going to help you. (laughs) I'm going to show you how to do it, because I know better. But more just recognizing the suffering of another human being, a fellow human being. Because all of us have been there. And if not this lifetime, certainly previous lifetimes. We've all been through all the realms of existence, you know, from the most heavenly realms to the most hellish realms. You know, we're not a stranger to those experiences. And so a sense of just recognizing our common humanity and allowing that to bring forth a um, deep sense of compassion in the heart sense of friendliness. And sometimes even with people who appear to be totally heedless, totally obsessed with their own world, uh, sometimes there is a way of making contact. Just a smile, meeting their eye, eye contact, smiling. And you don't know, you know some people they they never experience anyone smiling at them. You know some of the stories that school teachers tell me about the kids, like if they work in very difficult schools, and some of the stories of the kind of lives that those kids lead um you know just a smile might be something that just makes somebody's day just brightens their whole day. Their whole life, just a moment of kindness from a complete stranger. So rather than feeling um, angry or judgmental, disapproving when people maybe don't relate to us in the most beautiful, respectful way, um, consider the possibility that. You know maybe their life is pretty awful, and maybe that's why they seem so distracted, considering the possibility of just meeting them in the moment, because our mindfulness, our presence it's like like as I said that ill will is like a disease um you know, it it uh, affects us, it makes us feel bad, and also it can spread to others. Uh, in the same way, uh, mindfulness, kindness, presence um, can also have an effect on others. Only, of course, in this case, it's a very positive effect. You know, sometimes when I'm... Uh, in contact with um, the builder, say. And, you know, builders' lives seem to be very, uh, often very frantic. They seem to be a very, very difficult job they have because they have to sort of be doing about, I don't know how many different projects all at the same time and keeping all of the clients happy <laughs> and uh, thinking about all of the other people that they have to um, work with you know, it's it's a very exacting job that they have and you know, sometimes when i talk to the person who helps with um some of the work up in the hermitage you know i can just sense that they're you know completely distracted all over the place and uh, so i try to kind of just meet them in the moment and just um With a sense of kindliness, um, and sometimes there's a sense of actually that that they're uh, they're able to respond to that, and um, rather than the mind busy and frantic all over the place, the mind seems to settle, and uh, it's almost it's almost like sort of helping somebody into their body, <laughs> <laughs> which uh, is a funny way of putting it, but. I think you probably know what I mean and maybe you know sometimes you need to help yourself into your own body you know when you're all over the place just take a breath establish presence come into the body touch the earth The precepts are a very useful support um, in our lives because um, I always see them as like having a, a good friend at your elbow, and you know when you are on the edge of doing something that's maybe not completely um, skillful, there's a little memory okay, there's the precepts. It'd be better if I didn't do that. I see them as good friends that help to keep us out of a lot of trouble. They support mindfulness, they support a sense of presence, they avoid situations where we act in ways that give cause for regret. They support a sense of self-respect. And happiness about our lives and this happiness is actually a basis for for calm a basis for well-being a basis for insight you know, the eightfold path which can be divided into sila samadhi panya uh, establishing car uh, um, keeping precepts supports calm Calm supports insight. Insight supports precepts. Precepts support calm. Calm supports insight. It goes round in a circle, doesn't it? Which is why often the um, eightfold path is de- depicted as a as a wheel with eight spokes. This path, this eightfold path, that can begin anywhere. Yeah. During this retreat time, we've been uh, developing calm, giving rise to insight, anicca dukkha anatta. And now we're contemplating how that understanding can support us in living more carefully, responsibly, for our own welfare, as well as for for the welfare of um, all of humanity, actually. Our own welfare, the welfare of others, so rather than feeling overwhelmed at the prospect, or maybe that's the last thing you feel, maybe you're really happy to be going home, <laughs> but rather than feeling um you know um, over concerned about continuing the practice at home. It can be useful just to see it as being like a a really um, interesting puzzle, figuring out how we can apply these teachings, how we can maintain our practice of mindfulness in daily life, and what that really means. We're not going to be so calm and peaceful continuously as uh, we've maybe... As the states that we may be experienced during this time, and yet there is this possibility of the unshakable deliverance of the heart, the heart that does not tremble, free from sorrow, confusion, need. That knowing this is how it is right now. making this refuge, making the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha as a refuge, a reality, not just a nice idea, not just something we've read about or heard about, but something that sustains presence, that sustains well-being wherever we are, whatever we're doing, supports a wise perspective. So, I think maybe it's time to uh, end these reflections, these considerations. I hope it's been helpful, some of it. And uh, I offer this for your contemplation this evening.